Welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast, where powerful women are interviewed every week to share real inspiring stories and incredible insight to help women or anyone break the barriers, be a part of innovation, shatter the glass ceiling, and dominate to the top of their sport, industry, or life's mission. Join us as we celebrate exceptional women and step into our power. And now, here's your host, Angela Gennari. Hello, and welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast. My name is Angela Gennari, and today I am sitting with Dr. Susan Landers. How are you, Susan? Hi, I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. So happy to have you. So Dr. Susan Landers is a neonatologist, a pediatrician with extra training in the care of sick and premature babies. She attended Auburn University and the Medical University of South Carolina. She completed pediatric residency training at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas, and a neonatology fellowship at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. Dr. Landers practiced academic neonatology for 14 years on the faculty of two medical schools, and after that, she worked for Pediatrics Medical Group and Private Practice Neonatology for 18 years. While caring for patients full-time in private practice, she served as a speaker for the Texas Department of State Health Services. She was the medical director of the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin in Austin and served on the Milk Bank's Board of Directors. She was elected as a fellow in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Additionally, she served on the executive committee of the section on breastfeeding for the AAP for six years. Together with her husband, Dr. Philip Berry, she raised three children, one son, and two daughters, and is retired and resides in Austin, Texas. Very impressive. I'm so Oh, wow. Excited. You got the long version of the bio. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Perfectly good. You have <laughs> such an impressive career history. That's amazing. Well, good for you. Good for you. So what made you want to get into pediatrics? Well, when I first started medical school, I wanted to be a surgeon. Mm. I had had a great job after finishing college. I worked as a scrub tech okay. in the general hospital in Spartanburg, South Carolina, where yeah. I grew up. And the surgeons were nice and they showed me all the stuff. And I thought, oh, surgery, this is it. And so that was the way I was headed. But then when I did my third year uh, rotations, I fell in love with pediatrics. Yeah. Fell in love with neonatology. And I kind of wanted to get out of the South. I can't remember why now, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Texas is not like the Deep South, as you may know. <laughs> right. So I hightailed it all the way to Dallas, Texas, and mm -hmm. did my training there. And I never looked back. I thought it was wonderful to be a pediatrician mm -hmm. because I always really connected with the parents. And in addition to being trained in, in intensive care medicine, the thing that I really liked about pediatrics and neonatology was working with parents. Yeah. Uh, you cannot take care of a child, a baby, a teenager, any child without connecting with the parents in addition. So yeah. I enjoyed that in addition to actually practicing intensive care medicine. Wow. So tell me a little bit more about neonatology for our listeners who aren't very familiar with that field or that specialty. You have a wonderful children's hospital in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I think it's Do. Eggleston. Isn't that the name of it? That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Every big children's hospital and most 
big hospitals that have mother baby services, labor and delivery services will have a neonatal intensive care unit. Uh That's where kids who are born premature or sick generally are cared for and they require one-to-one or one-to-two nursing. They require incubators, radiant warming beds, mechanical ventilators to breathe, all sorts of extra medicines and therapy to support them. And babies as small as one and a half to two pounds are now surviving in NICUs. Now they're in the hospital for four or five or six months, Mm -hmm. recovering and growing and thriving. But we're doing a fantastic job in saving the lives of tiny premature babies. Yeah, And people don't realize that about 10% of newborn babies will be born either sick with some infection or birth defect or something, or be born premature. And so 90% of the time, everything is perfect. Yeah. Mom goes into the hospital, has her baby or has her baby at home and everything turns out great. But in that 10% of the time, we're the people who come to the rescue who scoop up the baby and take the baby to the NICU where specialized care is state-of-the-art. And um, now I must say that the parents who've had a kid in the NICU will never forget it. It's a big shock. It's a big trauma. But we're there because a lot of the deliveries are unexpected. Mm. A lot of premature deliveries and deliveries of sick babies are not planned. And parents are taken off guard. So we do a lot of surprise medicine. And then as things unfold, we get to know the parents and can inform them of what's going on. Wow. Yeah, that's, I didn't realize it was so high, 10%. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, well, and there there are a lot of late preterm babies born Mm -hmm. these days, between 34 and 37 weeks gestation for one reason or another, early inductions, early cesarean, moms just in preterm labor. And those kids look like they're full term, but they don't act like they are. I see. Sometimes they'll have low blood sugar or breathing problems. um, And commonly they require a short NICU stay. Okay. But yeah, when you look at all the deliveries across the board, 10% of newborns will have some sort of trouble yeah yeah but the flip side is 90 percent of the time everything is perfect yeah exactly well and thank god that we've advanced so far in medicine that we're saving babies now you know before you know if something went wrong during labor delivery it it may have been you know a death sentence for the mother or the baby or both or so thank god for you know advanced medicine The other thing that's going on these days is that women who are working are putting off childbearing until they're older, maybe their mid-30s, late-30s. People who have good medical insurance are using uh, infertility treatments, IVF, things like that. And advanced maternal age does increase the risk for problems in a pregnancy. Mm. So does IVF because you're more likely to have twins or triplets. And so as we've seen women try to postpone their fertility, 
that explains part of the rise of the rate of prematurity. I see. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Wow. So you spent your career in medicine, um, you know, on the academic side, on on the private practice side. So uh, you know a lot about, you know, having to balance motherhood and career and 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 on all of those aspects of life. So what what were your challenges? Do you feel? Well, when I started out in my mid thirties, I was totally unaware of how to be a working mother. Yeah. I knew how to be a good doctor. I had been well-trained and I kind of learned as I went along, I had three kids. They were spaced about three or four years apart and I was lucky to have a helpful husband, mm-hmm. but we all start out wanting to be a perfect mother. Oh yeah. Me included. Right. And I made so many mistakes and I learned how to take care of a sick kid, going to the pediatrician and get somebody else to cover for me. And my husband and I, you know, kind of like driving to and from the hospital to take care of things. And so I made all of those normal mom mistakes. How do you hire a nanny? How do you choose childcare? Mm -hmm. How do you get to the pediatrician when you're both working? Um, You know, where what is Montessori school better than a church based school? All of those things I struggled through mm-hmm. and I was doing okay with one and then two children. Okay. After my second, uh-huh. I got really busy. I was doing some research projects and I didn't do a very good job of taking care of myself. Uh-huh. I began to let stress kind of take over and I yeah. think that 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 had something to do with my um, happiness level and fulfillment at home as a mom. I got mm-hmm. through that period. <clears throat> and then my husband got a great job offer and we left Houston to go to a different medical school. My job was just so-so, um. but I had three little kids, new school, new neighborhood, new home, and a job I didn't like. And that started for me in my early 40s, a downturn, mm. a, a spiral down to depression. And during that period of time, I had to pull way back. I had to get therapy. I had to really sort through my priorities mm-hmm. and learn again how to take care of myself. Yeah. And the result of that was that I pivoted to a new job. I was so miserable in my job, even though my husband liked his. Yeah. I worked as a medical director for a small HMO, a health maintenance organization. And that was really nice. And it was nine to five, Monday through Friday, no weekends, no night call. Right. And I enjoyed that. It was being an executive physician. I thought that was fun. It lasted for two and a half years, but I missed clinical medicine. Yeah, yeah. So my husband and I did a lot of work on our marriage. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of improvements in my own self-care, and we decided to move to Austin for jobs that were good for both of us. Oh, good. And with that move, we... It was good. It was really good. Kids were in public school. 
there was something for each kid. Their needs were being met. I loved the practice group that I joined. Plenty of the men in that group I had known in Houston. And so coming full circle, even though I, I changed medical schools and left academic medicine, I came back into a role where I was better suited to practice medicine and be a working mother. Mm -hmm. As all of your listeners know, Angela, it is just no walk in the park. <laughs> if you have a full-time job and yeah. you have kids, it mm -hmm. is hard. It it's is two full-time jobs. It is. You're just, yeah. you're just constantly multitasking. You're constantly thinking of the children when you're at work. And if somebody's sick, it's even worse. Or you're thinking about whatever your job constraints are, or what project you've got going when you're home. Mm -hmm. There's almost no way to do both successfully. And I began to see it as a trade-off. Uh -huh. When I was at work, if I had a good nanny situation or the kids were in school, I could almost let go of some of the worries about children. Right. And then when I was at home with the kids, I learned how to let go of the stresses from work. Yeah. But I, but I think that I had to teach myself how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I like to talk to other younger working mothers who are in this mix right now because they know that it's hard. Mm -hmm. They know they do more household work and more childcare than their husbands or mm -hmm. their partners. We right. all know that. Right. And they tend to want to do a great job, just like I did and you do. But we don't ask for help as right. much as we should. Absolutely. And we take on, typically, we take on more than we can do. Right. And I think the hard job for a working mom is learning what you can do and what you can't. Right. And I'll I'll admit it took me probably a decade to really learn my limits as a working mother, how to take care of myself, how to have a routine that I could manage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we all go through a process of finding our way as working mothers. Right, right. And it depends on the age of our children. It depends on whether we're married or mm -hmm. single. It mm -hmm. depends on family support. There's so many factors that play into it. Yeah. Well, and what I have found also is that we put expectations on ourselves by comparing ourselves to other women around us. And so, you know, when my son was in elementary school, I was asked to join the the PTO, you know, the parent teacher organization, right. sometimes right. it's called PTA. Yeah. And so I was asked to join that and I would do my level best to get to those darn meetings, but they're always at like 10 o'clock in the morning on a right. Tuesday <laughs> and I'm a working mom. And so, you know, it's like, okay, I've got to rearrange my schedule and, you know, do do a couple magic tricks but I I'll I'll do it but it would be frustrating because some of the moms sitting there were you know they were stay-at-home moms and there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that I'm not I'm not judging right. but you know I would expect myself to have that same level of engagement the same level of, of participation this you know but yet you know here I am also trying to get 
40 hours of work done in a week and also trying to come to the table with as much as everyone else and and also trying to be a good parent and also trying to be involved with community and and it's it's impossible and so we have to stop comparing ourselves and start realizing this is the best version of me that I can give to my children you know oh, whatever that looks like you are so right we take on more than we can do because we think we should right I don't know how our culture has convinced us all that we want to work because we right. want to be fulfilled. We're good at mm -hmm. our jobs. We want to make money. We want to have lifestyle things. And that's fine. But we also want to have a family and want to be a mom and, and want to raise kids and have a marriage generally. But those two things are not compatible on an average day. Right. And so we don't give ourselves the grace of saying, okay, I'm working 40 hours a week. Maybe I don't need to be the PTO president. <laughs> right. Maybe I don't need to uh, mm -hmm. uh, volunteer to be the classroom mom. I mean, yep. I've made all of those steps just yeah. like you did mm -hmm. and tried to look like I could do everything. Yeah. And we can't do everything. We well, do not have the time and we do not have the ability to be mm -hmm. in two places at once that's really what we're asking ourselves to do yeah. is to be inhuman well and, and then I, the the sacrifice comes at our own self-care yes we does. won't we would never take away from our children our community our spouse but we will take away from ourselves exactly and i think what's going on nowadays is we're comparing ourselves to other working moms on social media yeah <laughs> which is not an accurate representation of what's Correct. really going on i love those women who post rooms that are a total wreck a total yeah. mess because <laughs> because they're probably realistic yeah um so and then we get these ideas that we have to do more things than our husband because mm. we're better at it than our husband yeah yeah I know that's another fault that working mothers you know asking my husband to do the laundry was a nightmare because he yep. did a bad job of it but you know what the laundry got done when I learned how to say okay it's your turn yeah we have to be willing to let go of all the things we think we're best at mm -hmm. and let them do a few things that they might actually do a pretty good job at. Yeah. It took me a long time to figure that out too. It really yeah. did. I think we yeah. all go through that challenge of how much can I do? Mm -hmm. And when we say yes to one more person, we're saying no to ourselves. That's right. That's exactly we right. We really are. Yeah. We are. And when we say no to ourselves, we have less of ourselves to give, you know, like I've, I've had to trick myself into self-care. So, okay. So I am pretty frugal um, with money, but I also know that if, if there's 10 things on my list and one of them involves self-care, that's the first thing to take to get off the list. Well, so what I would do 
is I, I could never justify spending money on myself or spending time on myself. Those are the two things I could never invest in. And uh-huh. so now what I've done is like a monthly massage, you know, and I, and I go to a place that has a membership. Wow. It's not expensive at all. Um, and it's very reasonable, but I pre-schedule it and I prepay it. And because it's oh, prepaid, I won't miss it, you know, because right. it's prepaid right. and I've, I've already paid for it. And I, you know, no matter how nominal it is, I'm not going to waste that money. And so I've pre-scheduled massages as far out as I can because it's a monthly pay. But I, you know, you have to trick yourself into, it's just another appointment on the calendar. It's an appointment on the calendar and I wouldn't cancel on, you know, someone else. So I'm not going to cancel on myself either. Another technique that I used over the years was to make a date with a friend to do a Mm. class together, you know, or Zumba or yoga or whatever. And I would meet on a Saturday if I was off and we would have a class together. Then we would go get some breakfast and coffee. And that worked too. Yeah. Now I was a runner when I was younger. So it was really easy for me to say, I'm just going to get out of the house and go running for 30 minutes and I'll be Mm -hmm. back. But what I learned from that experience, even if you're not a runner, is that getting out of the house, walking in nature is so calming, so soothing. Yeah. I don't know how I would do in a big city where there weren't, there weren't very many green spaces. I've always lived in places where there were lots of trees and bushes and grass and playgrounds. But for people who have nature nearby, I implore them to remember that just getting outside of the house and walking around the block mm-hmm. makes a huge difference. And you can do that with your kids, whether oh, they're yeah. on bicycles or bicycles or pushing in the stroller. And so that was always a big deal for me saying, I'm going to go take a walk or I'm going to go take a run. And yeah. my husband knew that when I came back, I was better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's funny because as much as we, you know, as working moms, we say, oh, the guilt can be, you know, it's painful, the guilt that you feel when you're not at home with your children. But I can tell you for myself, working makes me a better mom because it gives me the balance that I need and that validation that I need outside of the house that when I come home, I'm more confident, I'm more centered. I'm, you know, I I feel like working makes me a better mom. Everybody is different. I think that you just beautifully described what I consider the definition of being a good enough mother. Yeah, yeah. You are not there all the time. Mm -hmm. You're with them for important things. That's right. You miss a few little milestones. Mm -hmm. But because you work, because you're fulfilled in your job, Mm -hmm. that makes you a happier person. Yes. And that allows you to be a better mother. So you described it beautifully. Well, thanks. It took me quite a while to get to that point. And every now and then my husband would say, You know, you're being hard on yourself. You really are doing a good enough job. And we use those terms good enough Mm -hmm. to remind each other that we were there enough, that we were at enough plays, enough Mm -hmm. swim meets, enough orchestra performances, enough of whatever it is we all do with our parents. And he would look at me and say, okay, I think this is good enough. Um, And then as our schedules were lighter, we would do more stuff with our kids and volunteer to chaperone the orchestra trip. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really depends on your schedule. It depends Mm -hmm. on your stress level relative to work. 
And it depends on whether your work makes you intrinsically happy. Right. And if it does, as you said, and I thought medicine was very rewarding. I mm -hmm. loved being a doctor. I loved how the babies would get better and the parents would be so happy. And even if they stayed in the hospital five or six months, they would go home. Yeah. I love that. I felt part of something that was really amazing. Yeah. And that, when I thought about it that way, my kids knew that when I was in the hospital, I was taking care of a sick baby. Mm. And they kind of understood if I missed something. And I kind of was easier on myself right. if I missed something. <laughs> but mm. uh, you describe beautifully what mm. is the notion being a good enough mother. Mm -hmm. Well, and you can't always get it right, but you can get it right enough. The, the, the end of the day, does your child feel loved, right? And whatever that looks like. And so, and I've got to, I've got to do a little disclaimer. I actually this morning had an amazing meeting um, where Dr. Gary Chapman was our guest speaker, who is the author of the five love languages. Oh, and wow. so really it comes down to, you don't have to show love 100% of the time in exactly the way the person needs it 100% of the time. You wow. have to just make sure that they feel that love from you enough to keep their love tank full right so right, right. if my you know if my child's love language is is uh physical touch and I give mm -hmm. them a hug and a kiss before school and I send them on their way they are good you know I don't have to worry about having them you know snuggled up next to me for eight hours in a day for them to feel loved right exactly. so so it's exactly. about giving them the amount of love that it takes for them to understand that they need that they are loved without showering it and having to force the validation that right. comes with, you know, I need you to validate me as a mother because I can't find that validation anywhere else. Right. Right. And yeah. so we, we have to be able to get validation in other places. So we're not putting all the pressure on our family. Exactly. And the other thing that I like to talk about with younger mothers is that and you never know this until you have your second or third child. Each child is different. Yes. And each kid calls to a different part of us, a different part of a bit, a different way of being a mother. Mm -hmm. You just, you've just described it by using different love languages. One child needs to be snuggled with and read to. The other one needs you to spend some quality private time with them. Yes. The other one help, wants you to help them learn how to cook. Yep. And they're all different. Yes. And, and the way you spend time with your child is going to be a little equation that each mother has to figure out. What's the combination that works for this kid mm -hmm. and works for me? Yes that I can do when I'm at home with them. Yeah. Well, and I think just connecting with your children, you know, whether that connection is for an hour or for eight hours, you know, give right. them the connection that they need while also allowing them to be their own person. I have a great story for you. When my yeah. youngest was a teenager, she was 14. There were some very difficult babies in the, in the NICU. There were one or two kids who had terminal conditions and mm -hmm. They were just kind of lingering and it was very sad and their parents were having a hard time accepting. And I was talking to my husband and I made a comment to him and I said, oh, I just wish that poor baby would go ahead and die. And I meant that 
I didn't want him to suffer. I wanted it to be over. Mm. And my daughter looked at me and she said, how can you be a doctor if you want your patient to die? I just think that's ridiculous in her little teenage voice. Right. (laughs) And I went, oh my God, what did she hear me say? The next Friday evening, I took her up to the NICU. It was quiet. We walked around. We saw every baby. We talked to all the moms that were there visiting. I introduced Laura. I picked up some babies and snuggled. I told her the story of all the babies. There must have been 35 babies up there. Wow. And she said, oh, mom, now I get what you do. But wow. She, she had not had enough of an exposure mm. to know what the NICU was about. Yeah. And so I, I think what I did was figured out that she needed to connect with my work. Oh, yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And I, I, you know, that's the simple take your daughter to work day, but sure, this, this was a more poignant way of me figuring out that my younger daughter did not really understand what I did in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. And so just things like connecting in that way is yeah. important, especially yeah. as they get old enough to have good conversation. Right. Share your world. You know, like if you're asking them at the dinner table, how was school today? Be prepared to share how your workday was too. And that way they can connect with you and, you know, understand a little bit more about what makes you tick. You know, if you come home from work and you're, you know, frustrated, you've had a rough day, you should be able to, you know, number one, obviously we want to make sure that our family gets the best version of ourselves, but at the same time, they share a little bit of what your world look like. So that way they're prepared for like, Hey, mom had a kind of a rough day. We're going to give, we're going to take it easy on her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I used to say, well, I had a bad night because if I had been in the hospital all night, say, I'm sorry, I had a bad night. I've got to go take a nap. And then when I wake up, you'll have my full attention. And they got used to that. I mean, every now and then they acted disappointed, but it was just the way it was, you know, And, and they learned that mom needed to catch up on sleep. And then she was okay when she woke up. So we do need to be honest with our kids. We do need to share with them when we're stressed about something mm-hmm. because they think it's them. If we don't tell them that it's our work, they That's imagine right. that they've done something wrong. That's right. And that makes it worse for them to say, oh, dear, what did I do? Mom wasn't very, very um affectionate this evening when she got home well I wonder what's going on what did I do so you don't want your children to misinterpret your bad mood or your stressed out nature Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and you know children are very egocentric up until you know they're basically going off to college I think into the early 20s is really what psychology says so you know the world revolves around them and so if something is going wrong in the house then obviously they've you know they've internalized that as obviously this is about me you know and they they still believe that the world is still revolves around them even when you're not there. So we have to keep that in mind that, you know, we want to be honest with our kids to an extent, you know, age appropriate, but uh, we want to make sure that we are being honest with them and and allowing them into our, you know, a little insight into what our world looks like outside of them. Yes, I, I think you're right. 
Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about some of the challenges that you had as a pediatrician in talking with new moms. You know, did you, did they often come to you for advice, not just on medical, but I am, I'm assuming maybe for, you know, life. One of the reasons that I wrote my book, So Many uh -huh. Babies, is that when the work was done in the NICU and we'd be sort of hanging out, talking to moms, talking to nurses, yeah. we would tell stories about our children. All mothers do this. Oh, sure. you won't believe what my kid did today, or you won't yeah. believe what my daughter did this week. And the moms would say, they would look at me and say, I cannot believe you have a child with that problem or that issue. You're a pediatrician. Yeah. Aren't your children perfect? And I would go, <laughs> no way. There's no way my children are perfect. No right. one has perfect children. No. We all have children that have issues. Mm -hmm. And then they would feel relieved when we would talk about the issue, sibling rivalry, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so because the NICU moms loved my stories, my mom's stories, not my uh -huh. doctor's stories, they right. had their own doctor <laughs> story. They had their child in the NICU and they were terrified. But because they liked my mom's stories, I decided to write about NICU stories that were very inspiring. My patients yeah. whose parents were really very courageous and inspiring. And I wove them together with my own mom challenges to make it more realistic. Like, yeah. hey, I'm just a working mom too. Even though right. I was a doctor and I had this wonderful career, I had to go home and figure out my youngest had dyslexia. Oh, wow. And severe learning disabilities. And I had not a clue mm -hmm. how to work up dyslexia, how to have her tested, who she needed to see. And so, you know, I researched it. And this was in uh, 94. So it was before a lot of stuff was available on the internet. You know, I had to call people, talk to audiologists, talk to ch child development specialists, and, you know, talk to pediatricians and take her all these places to get her diagnosed. And some people gave me bad advice and some people gave good advice. Mm -hmm. And just like any other mother. Yeah. So who cares if I'm a pediatrician? I had to figure out what to do to get my kid what she needed. Yeah. To get her the help she needed to learn. And that was a wonderful experience. And when I share that experience with other moms, they go, oh, that doesn't make me feel so bad because I didn't know how to do something like that either. Right, right. Well, and I think we're all in the same the same boat. You know, we have to meet meet each other where we are. You know, there are some of us who are going to have a tremendous amount of experience in one way or another. And it may not be through education. It might be through life experience. You know, right. somebody, I used to work for the um, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And some of those moms are just so incredibly you know, oh. inspiring and knowledgeable. Oh. And I would have talks with the, the medical professionals in the industry, but I would learn so much more from the moms, you know, because yeah. this is their yeah. life. This is their day to day. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing the tenacity, the drive, the strength that people have. And that yeah. to me is so inspiring. Yeah. If you have the benefit of being a real advocate for your child, if your child has special needs or handicapped some way, yeah. It is wonderful. But in general, you've you've alluded to this notion in general of how much value women get 
from sharing support with others. Yes. Oh my we goodness. We all yes. have a palette that is filled with different colors of paint because right. our kids are different and they challenge us in different ways. But mm -hmm. the lady next to you at work or the, the colleague that you see once a week in a meeting may have very similar experiences. She may want to hear your stories over lunch or over coffee, and you're both going to leave that situation feeling better about right. not being alone. That's I right. cannot emphasize enough how important it is for working women, especially working mothers, to use their peers, their co-workers as support yeah. for issues that are going on in their private life. I yeah. did it all throughout my career. I had girlfriends tell me about their kid with this or their mm -hmm. child with that or ask me questions and we would put our heads together and, and solve problems. Yeah. It's just what women do. Yeah. We, we just like to talk to each other about our feelings mm -hmm. and we like to understand how other people solve problems and I think it's a very different than the way men um, think about problems with their kids oh absolutely I 100% yeah. agree with you yeah, yeah so I think and and no mom comes home from a long day at work and thinks to herself Yep, I'm crushing it at work and at home, and I'm just, you know, I'm I'm a hundred percent on all cylinders. Doesn't happen, right. <laughs> but we all feel guilty. We all feel like we're piecemealing it together, and so I think just giving ourselves the grace and leaning on other moms, leaning on other people who are going through similar experiences and sharing those experiences is so powerful. So powerful, uh, so important. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your self-care routine. How do you, how do you manage your own self-care? Oh, thanks. I used to be a runner mm -hmm. and then I joined a health club where I could exercise two or three days a week okay. or take a class. And that was a health club where, you know, childcare was available when yep. kids were younger. And then when we moved to Austin, I kept up the health club routine two or three days a week. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't religious. It was more like two days a week instead of three. Yeah. I didn't run, but I kept walking mm -hmm. and walking outside in my neighborhood was very, very settling, very soothing, very calming. Yeah. And as I got older and more sure of myself in my medical practice, my kids were going through the teenage years and, and it seemed like I needed more stress relief yeah. <laughs> during those years. Mm -hmm. So what I do now that I'm retired, in addition to, to Pilates three days a week, mm -hmm. is I walk outside whenever I can and I do some strength training mm -hmm. and I'm really big on exercise. I know it's time consuming, but if you just take a 30 minute walk three days yeah. a week, yeah. it makes a huge difference. It really does. It really does. I played piano off and on over the years. I'm not very good at it, but mm -hmm. when I would sit down to play, I wouldn't think about work or stress. I would just think about the notes. Yeah. And that is a, is a meditative thing. You know, making music on an instrument or even listening to music is very stress relieving. 
Yeah, for sure. I did not start writing in a journal until I was much older, in my 50s. Again, it, it was that third child who had a really difficult teenage uh, period, and I, I would write down, and I recognized that I felt better after journaling. Mm-hmm. So I've kept that up, not every day, but often enough that it's a helpful routine. Yeah. So exercise, playing music, journaling. Um, I've always done needlework. Mm-hmm. It sounds very old-fashioned, but I've always loved cross-stitch and mm-hmm. cruel embroidery. And I remember a therapist asking me once, well, what do you like about needlework? And I said, well, you just sit there and you don't think about anything. He yeah. Said, you don't think about anything? I said, no, nothing. Just where the needle goes and thread up and down. And it's really simple. I mean, it's not simple. It requires you to be pretty precise. But your mind leaves whatever else you're thinking about so Mm -hmm. it was a form of meditation yeah and and I've used that off and on over the years Mm -hmm. and I'm itching to get back to doing some more of that so yeah because it really is wonderful and soothing now a lot of moms listening are gonna roll their eyes going oh give me a break I don't have time to do any of that stuff (laughs) but they do have time to walk two or three days a week Mm-hmm. They do have time to take a class with a friend at least mm-hmm. once a week. Mm-hmm. They do have some time to listen to music mm-hmm. in the car when the kids aren't around. Because if the kids are in the car, that's when you want to talk to them. Right. Uh, they do have time maybe to add back that hobby that they did before they became mothers. Something yeah. that they really love, whether it's painting or writing or drawing or needlework or whatever. Mm-hmm. self-care is so important so crucial to our well-being yeah if there's one message I can give to working mothers it is find out how to take care of yourself because no one else is going to do that for you right right until it's too late until you know he until they're forced to and, and so that, that's not where we want to get either, you know, enjoy right. your life. Now you can't spend your entire life taking care of everyone else without ever taking care of yourself and then expect to have a happy, fulfilled life. It just right. won't happen. So nope. yeah, doesn't. I agree. I agree with you. So who inspires you? Oh, I have always been inspired by, um, uh, the Supreme court justice. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she was such a champion for women's rights. Yes. And I've always been inspired by Hillary Clinton. I remember telling my dad that he he's a staunch Republican and I'm, uh-huh. I'm a Democrat, which is, I shouldn't say that on a podcast, but anyway, <laughs> he was complaining about Hillary Clinton on the news, you know, he's watching something on Fox news. And I said, daddy, tell me what you don't like about Hillary Clinton. And he He put his hands on his hips and he said, listen, she's highly educated. She's very opinionated. She has written a lot of things. She knows a lot of things. She tells people what she thinks. And she's just a little bossy. And I looked at him (laughs) and I said, hey, daddy, I am all those things. Right. I am all of those things. And he looked at me and he said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I Uh am just like that and I I, it may have confused him but (laughs) the point I was making 
was that, you know, we idolize women who get out there, get in front, mm. are powerful, are influential. I do. Right. I would love to change healthcare in this country. I yes. would love to make healthcare more about patients and less about business. Yeah. And I don't have a clue how to do that because of all the big insurance companies and all the ho hospital associations. But wouldn't it be nice if you really were a powerful, influential person to be able to make a big difference? Mm -hmm. Michelle Obama is another person that I admire a great deal. Mm -hmm. She did a lot of work for children's obesity and children's nutrition. Oh, interesting. When she was first lady, she did. Yeah. She did a lot of work during that period. So Well, and I think, um, what is, I, I can't remember what the saying is right now, but kind of it, your pinnacle of your life is when you figure out how to be happy serving others, right? And so I yes. think that that really is like, it. you know, we work, we work, we work, we put food on the table. But once we figure out how to be happy serving others is when we've really reached that legacy point in our life where it's like, this is my legacy. This is what is bigger than me. And, and exactly. serving others is that. You're still young and you're still in the process of serving others. And mm -hmm. now that I've retired from medicine, I'm trying to sort of reinvent how to serve others, you know, with a blog, with a newsletter, with webinars, yeah. whatever, and writing some eBooks that might be helpful. But it is important, as you say, to think of ways that your strengths contribute to your community, to your yes. world, to yeah. serve others. Really, that's what it's all about. Really, you don't is. have to be a doctor to make a difference. No, no, not <laughs> at all. Not at all. Um, I think I think moms make a difference every single day, and women make a difference every single day in people's lives because of the care that we give to those around us. You know, we, we really do. You know, I feel like if you can improve one person's life every single day, whether that's just a simple smile when somebody's having a bad day, right. you know, a phone call to say, Hey, I hear you. I support you. I'm here for you. You know, whatever that is, if you can just do one thing every single day, I think you would see a dramatic increase in your own oh, happiness. You're so right. You're so right about that. Mm -hmm. So, so tell me, um, um, one thing that I ask on every podcast, and this is just something that I have found with women in general, we, as women, we tend to give our power away. We either give credit where, you know, we should have step, you know, we should have owned that credit, but we gave it to somebody else. We, you know, we give our power away when somebody criticizes us or our work and we don't stand up for ourselves. There's so many instances where we give our power away because we are not always comfortable stepping into that power. Can you tell me about a time that you've given your power away and maybe another time that you've stepped into your power? Let's see. I think I might have given my power away when I decided <clears throat> not to pursue clinical research, mm. when I decided to leave academic medicine. Mm -hmm. I liked analyzing data and I liked asking questions, but the whole procedure was very onerous, mm. very time consuming. It caused me a lot of stress. And I couldn't do my job as a physician and take care of my kids and also be good at research. Mm -hmm. So even though I had some really good ideas, I think I gave my power away 
by dropping that whole area of my career. Mm -hmm. And then after we moved to Austin, I got some extra training in breastfeeding medicine and donor milk banking Mm -hmm. and started working in those areas. And I got my power back as I became an an expert, newly trained expert Uh in those areas, which are niche niche areas of neonatology. At the time, there were not a lot of pediatricians trained in breastfeeding medicine and very few donor milk banks. Mm -hmm. And so I got my power back by allowing myself to do some professional development, to get some extra training, to say, I want to do this, but I'm not quite sure how. Mm -hmm. And so I asked the questions. I was still curious. It's always good to be curious. But I had enough sense to get the training, to get the help, to get the certifications that I needed. And then I was more powerful. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's wonderful. Well, good for you. Good for you. I love that story. So what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Oh, wow. Um, That is a great question. I I would tell my 18-year-old self, not to be so hard on herself, mm-hmm. not to think that she had to make straight A's, not to think that she had to study and not go to the sorority or fraternity events, not to think that getting into medical school was everything. Mm-hmm. I might even tell her to take a gap year between yeah. college and med school. Um I, I think my 18-year-old self, self was just too focused on learning medicine and becoming a doctor. And although that was amazing and rewarding and unbelievably fascinating, mm-hmm. I avoided doing other parts of my life. And I have no travel. I didn't go to Europe until my honeymoon. Wow. Yeah. You know, nowadays kids go to Europe after they finish high school. And so I think I would tell my 18 year old self to kind of cool it for a year. Yeah. Try to do some things that are enjoyable and then go become a doctor. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. (laughs) I like that advice. That's really good advice. I was, I was the same way. I was very, very serious all through high school and college and and I didn't give myself any grace and and I think it's just you know it it becomes harder and harder because the more you are you know holding on to this tightly you know I have to be this and I have to do it this way and this has to be the way I'm doing it it becomes harder to let go later you know and that's when you get burnout and that's when you really deal with a lot of that stress so yeah yeah, yeah, great advice. Right. So one last question. I've really enjoyed our talk. Um, what What do you wish more people knew? I wish more working moms knew how important taking care of themselves is yeah. to their well-being. I wish they knew how important having a mentor was, a mentor at work, mm-hmm. having friends in the workplace, because most of them are also working mothers. Yeah. I wish that working mothers didn't feel so alone yeah. in their jobs and being mothers. I, 
even though social media exists for that kind of sharing, I don't think it serves that purpose. Right. And I wish that working women could really in, enjoy the support of each other. Yes. As I look back on my life, I think I learned so much from my friends and colleagues mm-hmm. by just chatting about things or having lunch together or having coffee together. And I worry that we're also get the work done, go home and take care of the kids. We're forgetting that we need that human connection. Yes, we do. With mm-hmm. other women. Mm-hmm. Well, men are important too. And our spouses yeah. are very important. But women really thrive by being understood by other women. Yes. We really like to feel the support and the presence from other women. And I guess it's, I guess that's cultural or evolutionary because we prop each other up. Yeah. And I wish working mothers knew that when you prop each other up, you all feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that that was kind of the point of the podcast because I just felt like women were not, we didn't have enough of that going on, you know, where we lift each other up and we celebrate each other's success and we celebrate each other's, you know, it's okay to, to, to also not be perfect. And I think the more you talk to other moms and the more you talk to other women, you'll start realizing like nobody is seeking perfection from anyone. You know, none of us are looking for, I'll only be your friend. If you're perfect, I'll only be, I'll only think you're a great person. If you're perfect, that's not true. That's not true, but yes, I agree. We're all just trying to do the best job we can. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I love that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, peer groups, you know, peer groups, find your tribe and, you know, support other women and lift each other up and, you know, find that value in each other's in each other's guidance and support and you know camaraderie if your podcast is doing that you're to be applauded because that is so important thank you and I know your listeners appreciate that based on the conversation we've had I know that you've learned a lot from your guests yes and your own Mm -hmm. personal experience Mm -hmm. and you're helping other working mothers learn what you've learned. Well, yeah. And, and I, I can tell you that just in the past, you know, several months since I've launched this podcast, I have met some of the most extraordinary women who have taught me so much about every aspect of life. And it's just really put everything in perspective uh, for me. And I mean, there are just some amazing people out there who I think all just want to see each other succeed. So You're right. I'm glad. And I wish you every success. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Susan Landers, it has been a pleasure. I've absolutely enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it too. I think we've, we've, uh, touched a lot of important issues. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone listening today. Um, Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Pretty Powerful Podcast. You can find information about Dr. Susan Landers on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Please like, subscribe, and share, and we will see you next time. Have a great day. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.